You're listening to the Pop Czar Podcast. The man you've all been waiting for. This is his first Star Trek convention in quite a long time. I know he's thrilled to be here. Captain James Tiberius Kirk himself. <laughs> Bill's here to field a few questions, so just fire away. No, Mr. Shatner. Mr. Shatner. That's the first question. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, when you, you were in a beam down on the planet, okay, for the la- last time in episode 25, uh-huh. I was wondering, like, um, what, what what was going on with the, the crew uh, in that uh, particular... Episode 25? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to be here. I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? <laughs> It's movie time. Space, the final frontier. That never ends. What's up? Welcome back. It's the Movie Time Podcast. That's right. It's movie time from popzara.com. This is Nathan Evans, managing editor of popzara.com. Back once again with my number one, the co-host of this very, very awesome episode, Ethan Brem. Ethan, engage. How's it going? God, I'm not a Star Trekky or Trekker or whatever. It's hard to... Hard to define because it's like they have they self label themselves a million different things, but I am a fan. I am a Star Trek. I think fan. I'm a fan, but I'm a fan sometimes. <laughs> like I'm not unconditional. Like these are not my children. I don't have to love them. I mean, you're a parent, right? Do you ha- yeah. do you have to love your kids all the time, or can you just like them? You have to love them all the time. You don't have to like them all the time. Okay, is that the rule? Mm-hmm. What if they're? What if they turn out to be like serial killers? Is that still apply, or is that? Is yeah, that... I think it's probably the same. I don't know. I hope I never have to deal with that. That's when you become brave. What a brave parent! I oh stood goodness. by. He was a good boy. He never gave any signs, but yeah. except all those Star Trek movies he watched, it was a, it was a sign. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, welcome back, everybody. Like I said, Movie Time Podcast here to talk about Star Trek. Specifically, here to talk about Star Trek: The Motion Picture from 1979. The one that started it all again, and the one that started it all again again, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, 1982. Um, Ethan, real quick, I think we should tell the audience, uh, we're kind of in a time warp because we actually planned on recording this last week, but over at the Pop Zara headquarters, there was a malfunction, and <laughs> a lot of our beautiful podcasts got lost into the ether. So we're kind of re-recording a little of this, uh, so we, we kind of got a redo, a second chance, so to speak. Yeah, we didn't get too far, at least. No, but what's really fun is that I think that mimics sort of the trajectory of Star Trek, or specifically the original series, where I think we're going to talk about this. Um, And I think these two movies represent something very special and something very, very unique that I don't think has ever happened before or since in filmdom, where you have a series, you have a project that was rebooted multiple times. It's available in multiple different ways, and they've all sort of been successful in their own way. The original series came out, what, 66, I think? Was it 66? Yeah, think so. yeah. A television show. Uh, Low-budget television show, space sci-fi, started with something called The Cage. Didn't work. They rejiggered it, and it became a phenomenon. Well, it didn't become a phenomenon just yet, but it did become a phenomenon, so much so that it became a film, which, of course, rejiggered the formula. Uh, everybody wore pajamas, and they beat V'ger. But then, after that, they rejiggered it again with The Wrath of God. And they've since rejiggered it many times since. But it's basically the same thing, just gone through permutations, sort of like this podcast. It's gone through permutations. Yeah, we're rebooting. We are rebooting on the fly. We don't care what you think, because if we fail, we'll just change 
and power on. Let's get this out of the way. You are not a huge Star Trek lifelong fan. You are a convert, correct? Yeah, I am a convert. Like, three months ago, convert. <laughs> so, uh, my wife, as I've, I've told you a little bit off off the record, uh, my wife and I, you told me you wanted to uh, talk about you, Star Trek. I'm not, you feel like I'm in a confessional. Like, I, oh, I confess to you. <laughs> I confess my sins. I don't know Spock. So, well, I mean, you know, I, admittedly, <laughs> I had only seen the J.J. Abrams movies, and um, you told me you wanted to talk about uh, the 1979 movie and, and Wrath of Khan, and so I said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not going to be that guy and just jump into a movie not knowing anything. I wanted to see a couple, a few episodes of the TV show first, mm-hmm. so I went to Quora, great website, and someone had asked, uh, basically, I'm, I'm trying to watch the movies, what episodes of the TV show do I need to watch to prime myself for the movies? Someone gave a list of, I believe, five episodes. I threw in a sixth one myself. I watched The Cage, which was not on their list, but I love, oh man, it, that might be my favorite one that I watched. And then the other ones were Errand of Mercy, um... The one that introduces Khan. Um, Space Seed, uh, is it? Yeah, maybe that was the one. And then a couple of, and then the, the 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 first one with Kirk in it, and then two other ones that had to do with Spock on his the one one where he was like engaged to be married and he had to fight Kirk, and then mm-hmm. I believe the one where he had to save his. Let dad. me say this. Let me say this. You that gnashing you hear are Star Trek fans listening to this shouting it's the episode four it's great i'm not making fun of you guys because honestly i don't remember either but yeah you can't see or hear them but they're out there crying in in unison they are out there but but in my defense i <laughs> i have it's i'm a brand spanking new uh yeah watcher here and i and but here's the thing i loved it i loved the show and i think i like the show more than i like the movies actually and people were were saying oh the first season's slow the second one's really really the good season i liked all of it i liked every episode i watched it's it's definitely from the 60s but at the same time i loved this it, it, there was like this meditative quality that the, that the show had and, and it found its spots uh, um, for tension and for like haunting moments in strange ways um for instance the cage where like the they meet the people who can read minds and then they like unveil it in the most abrupt way ever that makes it uh kind of terrifying but great we Um, should um we should say that for those who don't know the cage is actually the pilot and it was rejected and what i say remember we said rejiggered um Characters were replaced, uh, characters were changed, and the the main character, Captain Pike, was excised from the show. But they brought him back later, anyway. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and it, and yeah, I I love the show. Um, we we watched those six episodes, and then we watched the first two movies. And my wife and I were both like, let's finish the show. And so that's our next endeavor is finishing the rest, of, watching the rest of the episodes. Are you um, interested in watching the new Star Trek show that just started a couple weeks ago, um, starring Captain Pike from The Cage? Um, it not, since you told me about it, it, it is sound interesting, but I think I'm going to work my way there. I think I'll, I'll probably want to watch, you know, Next Generation and, and all those um, first. I have to insert this obligatory thing just in case anybody thinks I'm a hater. I do love the original series. I do love The Next Generation quite a bit. Um, I, From a television perspective, I think The Next Generation is probably the best of the TV shows. I have not wa- fully watched Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise. I'm not caught up on all of that. I detest Discovery and Picard 
with the hatred of a thousand suns. Uh, I don't think they I don't think they capture the universal like wonder and scientific. I don't know. I don't know what the word you look. Scientific optimism of Star Trek. Whereas I think up until a certain point, I think it's there, and I think it's present in the movies we're going to talk about right now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you were talking about how, like, in the 60s, um, you know, there weren't a lot of TV shows that oh, we yeah. were still talking about. Uh, yeah, you, I was going to ask you that question. That I was going to ask you a question. So from a film perspective, I think you and I were talking about this before in uh, phase one <laughs> that didn't get saved. Um, television in the 60s was interesting because it was usually cheap, but it was usually uh, – but budgets could be extended to – have lush serials like we're on single locations like you'll have entire shows filmed in Hawaii which looks naturally beautiful but the budget's small yeah. and Star Trek I mean wasn't the lowest budget show but it wasn't a high budget show and I think um, I, I think fans would agree that they kind of like the kitsch of that a little bit which we're going to get into but it's a show from the 60s how many television shows from the 1960s I think you brought up one uh, I think we I think we we both came up with three how many television shows in the 60s are genuinely still watched and discussed today? Yeah. And, and I think only three. I think Star Trek, of course. You mentioned uh, the original Twilight Zone mm-hmm. and possibly the Jetsons. Yeah, and me, I thought of another one. Was the monst- mm. the the monsters? The monsters was early sixties, correct? Uh, late sixties, but it was, it was only 60s. it was two seasons. But the the thing about the monsters, though, is that I was actually thinking about this because I think uh, Rob Zombie's rebooting it. Yeah, I know that's what we're uh, thinking of it too. But I I do love the monsters. But you have that the Adams family. You have these yeah. things. But the original show itself has sort of been dissipated. It's been rebooted. It's been rejiggered again. It's been done this, and I don't think it's I don't think it stayed with the, the public consciousness the way a lot of things like Star Trek have. You have, you know, you have shows, this, the old pulpy serials like The Lone Ranger, you know, you have uh, John Carter, you have, I, I got so many, I could have been so many Westerns that Gunsmoke. that were huge, like Gunsmoke, Bonanza. These were phenomenons. These were Stranger Things yeah, times 100. plus years, yeah. Yeah, but um, forgotten. But well, the forgotten. thing about TV is interesting. So, like, obviously, 1950s TV, I mean, TV's been around since... I mean, the 41, I believe, was like the first uh, commercial television broadcast. But, I mean, when I Love Lucy aired in 1951, I believe it debuted, I mean, TV was uh, took off like crazy. And it was actually on the verge of bankrupting uh, the film studios yes. because people were uh, just gung-ho about TV. And then, you know, the 60s came along and they got rid of the Hays Code in film and um, they – uh, you know, with thanks to the influence of um, French New Wave and, uh, you know, all those Italian movies and stuff. And then film got a rebirth in 1966, 67 with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and then TV, I think, kind of had to adjust a little bit, maybe. Um, and I don't think Star Trek was a response to that. I think later stuff was. But um, I do think that it was a weird time for television the late 60s I, was. I want to say two things. You brought up I Love Lucy. We have Lucy to thank, by the way, Desi Lucy, uh, yeah. with Desi Lucy Studios for helping uh, create Star Trek. And for anybody who wants a little bit of this history that Ethan's talking about, go seek out a book called The Studio by John Gregory Dunn. I think I may have mentioned this before, but it's very yeah. apropos. Uh, it's a great book about where he was invited back scenes. I believe it was 20th Century Fox when they were basically going through this mess. Like they were losing money left and right. And they pinned their hopes on two giant movies, Dr. Doolittle 
and a very little lesser-known indie movie that wasn't going to do well called Planet of the Apes. And of course, we don't know how that turned out. Um, but it's interesting, though, because Planet of the Apes and Star Trek share one major thing in common. Uh, cheapness can be an asset if the story is good. And I think no one would argue that Star, uh, Star Trek wasn't without its charms, but it was cheap when it needed to be. And for all the groundbreaking special effects, I mean, for the most part, it came down to people in rubber suits and, and cardboard sets. I mean, just go look at Kirk fighting the Gorn. And it's, I think later on they filmed in, like, Vasquez Rocks, though, like, maybe like yeah, three. Yeah, because it's, but, like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it's, a, it's basically just, you can go there for free. Exactly. Um, um, I, I could go to space. But, but you know what I mean, though? It's like you put the right monkey mask on people, and suddenly you're on a planet of apes. You, yeah. Your imagination kicks in. The music is good. The actors are, are have have uh, charisma, and you have a huge franchise, which yeah. uh, which eventually likes which I think um, did the reverse of Star Trek. It started as a film franchise, and it went to TV, whereas Star Trek started as TV went to film. Yeah. And so, but um. And, and uh, Planet of the Apes is an anomaly in the sense that they rebooted it, what forty years later, and it's arguably better than the originals and I love the original five movies but I mean those reboots are incredible they are incredible and I think you know you you talk about Matt Reeves but I don't but I think the problem is and and this is nothing against the new movies is that the original ones came first and they have the iconic ape outfits and for and I don't think anything is necessarily going to be as iconic Uh, you can get apes looking realistic you know you can get photorealistic apes but you're not going to get photorealistic fake apes like yeah. wouldn't it it's have like been the Ninja Turtles? It's like the the '90s Ninja Turtle movies, and then you have the new ones that are all CGI. Um, and they're oh my not goodness, good. it would be so funny if they redid it, the Planet of the Apes and they made CG apes that looked like the '60s one. <laughs> well, they, they did that with Yoda in uh, what was the last, Je- uh, last, Je- last Jedi? I think they made him look like a puppet, but he yep. was like a CGI puppet. Well, because I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, because the the attempts to make a better version of the puppet failed. Because yeah. for the same reason I, I mentioned about apes, and I guess we're going to go into Star Trek here in a minute, is that you can't necessarily take something that worked low budget, add a huge budget to it, and expect it to be better simply because it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think let's get into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, Star Trek The Motion Picture, directed uh, by Robert Wise. Uh, we've talked about him many times. We're, we're big. You and I are big fans of Robert Wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, he did The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, West, did he do West Side Story? Yeah, West Side Story, Sound of Music. Sound of Music. One of the one of the greats, uh, but an old-fashioned director who understood grandiose, who understood epicness on a level that I don't think most directors could, and I don't think any of the subsequent Star Trek movies uh, uh, even wanted to have, to be honest with you. And I'm not sure if he had the same editor for all his movies. I'd have to look it up. But um, the way that he paces his movies... Um, is kind of spectacular, uh, and you and we we talked about it the day there should still mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast like maybe a year ago now. Yeah, um, and that movie is maybe the best paced a uh, fifty sci fi movie ever, if not the best fifty sci fi movie in general. Um, but I mean, you look. I mean, Sound of Music won a bajillion Oscars for just everything. Well, um, West even Story, even the, 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 the hills are alive. I mean, yeah, exactly. So. Like those are, those are arguably you make his those are the two best musicals ever. Um, Throwing Mary Poppins, maybe, but um, a film, film musicals. I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. You, 
you have a director who understands filmmaking on a level, on just like a focused level, an incisive level that few filmmakers understand, um, and he's doing a movie that is so its own beast, uh, just the world that he's he's tapping into, and it and which is why, uh, and we're gonna get into it, but it's it's why I think the first. I loved. I'm gonna say I love both of these movies. Um, I think the, but but you love them differently, right? Yeah, I think if you take it from a, I think if you look at it in like a, a, a isolated incident where you have no series before this and you just are like, what is this Star? I've never heard of Star Trek. What is this? And you watch it. I think it's a better movie in that sense. But I think in context um, of the series, the second one's a better movie. But I think the filmmaking, um, as far as just the well, the fundamentals are better. I think in the first movie. I think you you just hit on you just hit the nail on the head about why I wanted to talk about these two, and the fact that you with the the motion picture, you have Robert Wise directing a motion picture, an event. The movie starts off with a fanfare. It's like what three minutes of of just noise. Yeah. Fanfare, like an old old fashioned spectacle, like you're watching the you know the fifth uh, the Ten Commandments. And then it starts off with this really prestigious logo. And, you know, you hear now about all the troubles, how it was rushed and all the special effects. But let me tell you something real quick. I have watched this movie many times in my life. And I think the age I watched it impacted how I felt about it. If I was coming and expect, and I think the problem is this movie comes in the shadow of Star Wars, the most exciting thing that's ever been. And the biggest movie of all time. And people coming in expecting this, and they're not getting Star Wars. They're getting 2001 A Space Odyssey. For good reason, because of the, the special effects man, Douglas Trumbull, by the way, yeah. who died this year. All right. yeah, he did Close Encounters, too. Yeah, Close Encounters. Like His type, his type of cinematic uh, special effects are marvelous, but they're not exciting. They're ponderous. Exactly. And, I, and when you have that matched with this, that long, laborious, elongated – I mean, you have scenes in, in the motion picture that go on for five minutes – there's a scene you know you know the scene I'm talking about when Kirk first meets the Enterprise again. <laughs> yeah. By the way, my favorite scene in the movie, five minutes long. But they're just circum. They're just like, it's like this is why they invented beaming people up so they didn't have to do this. But <laughs> it's uh, but it's it's you know what it is? It's Enterprise porn. It's yeah, like, it is. And here's how I feel about it now. I used to think, oh my God, look at Kirk's face. He sees this giant ship. He's going back. But I realize now that Kirk is actually a surrogate for us. He becomes a surrogate for the audience because you're a fan of this show. This show bombed. It didn't do very well. Um, it caught on after its death, became the biggest thing on the world. It went through permutations. It got, it, got outs- it got accolades from NASA. It was supposed to be rebooted as a TV show. That didn't happen. Star Wars comes out, so it gets rejiggered as a TV show. Uh, uh, sorry, a big-budget movie. This is your reward for being faithful. You're in the theaters, and you're in your mind, you watch Star Trek. The only way you've ever seen it is on syndication. There's no VCR. There's no nothing. You had to be there to watch it. So you had to make time of your life, and this show became a phenomenon, right? Like, unlike most – can we just say this? Star Trek is the original fandom, like the yeah. original major fandom. It, what, it's what begat conventions for fandom. It, 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 and let me say something too, real quick. the The idea of something watching something 
on the small screen, which by back then was incredibly small screen, mm-hmm. versus the and then the, the juxtap- juxtaposed to watching something on the big screen. Like you have, even if you are a hardcore Star Trek fan, you watched every time it's in syndication, you watch the reruns, all this stuff on TV, and now you're seeing all that stuff that you love, not mm-hmm. only with a better budget behind it, but on the big screen. Like however, like whatever the screens. They're probably the same back then, but yeah, like 20, 30 feet foot screens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, just, I mean, but just, but just like on a, but not only that though, that you look at the size of scale on this. If you've seen this on a big screen, do not watch this on your phone. Um, one of the again, one of the reasons we're talking about this is because Paramount just remastered this movie again. Uh, they took the two thousand one director's cut, which massively increased the value of the film. It definitely it it's not a it's not a Star Wars, you know, New Hope. George Lucas special edition. It's a better version of the film. Um, special features were put in. Uh, corrections were excised. Like this was like new scenes were not new scenes, but new scenes were transposed into it. And it, the result is a film that looks better. Um, unfortunately, the thinking behind it, I think you read about this, is that the reason people didn't really love this movie had nothing to do with the special effects. And I keep hearing this. I keep seeing this argument. Like, do you people realize what the Star Trek fans had before this? They had paper mache. They had rubber. They, yeah. You would have put rubber on the screen, they'd be happy. If you would have put the same thing on TV uh, that was on TV on the screen, they'd be just as happy. It wasn't that, although it does look great. The movie is massive, and I want to point this out. Watch this on a big screen, right? Watch this on a sizable screen, and you will see um, you know, alternating shots between the characters, the ships, the planets, V'ger, the enemy that are so massive that I don't think that's ever been replicated in a film on that scale before, it, it you really feel it. You feel the budget. You feel... What's the word I'm looking for? You feel the epic scope that they're trying to convey, and I think Robert Wise was the perfect director for this. I don't think Spielberg could have done this, which I think they asked him to. I don't think I don't think Martin Scorsese could have done this, and everybody, everyone would be dead in Act 1. But, but you, see, you see what I mean. There's You watch Kirk look at the Enterprise, and that's your reward for being a fan. You're being rewarded for being faithful. You get five minutes of this shot. You see every crevice of this beautiful model. You see little spacemen darting around. You see imperfections. You see dirt. You see everything. And then the movie starts, <laughs> and it's horrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, I, I, and I, I haven't read a lot about what, what like diehard fans think of this movie but i'm gonna guess it has to do with the characters um you mean the pajamas no uh but... no just like like the characterizations like when spock came on board i was like what who is this like this does not feel like the same guy no. who was in the tv show kirk just it feels like someone um wrote captain kirk as as captain kirk and they didn't write they didn't they didn't rely on William Shatner playing Captain Kirk. They just wrote Captain Kirk. Yeah, the, the characters have no sense of camaraderie ship during this movie at all. Yeah, they, exactly. They're being introduced hastily. Like, they, they show up. Bone shows up, by the way. McCoy shows up, and he looks like he just came out of a 70s disco. He's got the <laughs> open-ended thing, and he's like, just a moment, Captain Sir. Like, who talks like that? You know? Yeah. Or Scotty complains, and he, it, there's all these lingor... Like I said languorous scenes of the characters just it's like they don't feel like they know each other yeah like like after being on you know after being on a show for years you think they know each other but they don't they don't feel lived in they don't feel right it, it was a strange choice that they picked this writer who's literally never i've the stuff he's done like 
He's in random like three episodes of just different TV shows. I've never even heard of this person, and he has doesn't have a single film credit to his name, I believe. Um, yet he they chose him to write this movie. Well, again, I I think it's partly because they wanted to get away from the the smaller scale of of the TV shows, which are episodic. And I mean this this movie itself is basically like a reworking of an episode called The Changeling. Which is a great little episode, by the way. It's the exact same story. You know, they come across a probe that has evolved past the point of no no return, and it, it threatens life forms, and it wants to join with its creator. And it's basically just like a plastic. <laughs> it's like a thermos on a string. But in this, in in the motion picture, you know, not, let's not spoil anything. But the the entity turns out to be an Earth probe sent hundreds of years before the Voyager that had grown sentient because it collected so much data and it wanted to join with the creator, the humans. It, what a great sci-fi premise, right? Yeah. And the ending becomes 2001 A Space Odyssey. A new life form is born. It, and, uh, by the way, the, the guy who wrote the story for this, not the screenwriter, but mm-hmm. the story writer, he wrote the original Star Wars novel before the movie came out, like the one that George Lucas isn't that, that was credited isn't that to funny? Like he was the ghostwriter on it. Isn't that funny? Like, people, like, at one point in time, people were actually, like, the two fandoms were Star Wars, Star Trek. And are you pro this or pro that? And these two series are from the exact same DNA on many on many levels. Like, yeah. there's so much interplay between the two. Like, it's, it's, in fact, with the new films, it is the same stuff, right? <laughs> it's the same directors. Um, but I was going to say, going back to this for a second, uh, when, we, when we talk about, like, the epic scope of Star Star Trek the motion picture. I think the the reason people don't I think they I think they're like me. They probably like this movie quite a bit. They might even admire it, but they don't love it because there's nothing to love. There's nothing to hold on to. There's there's no there's no wink like there's a scene when William Shatner winks at the screen, but even that feels out of place. Yeah. It's like when Batman tells a joke in the new Snack, Zack Snyder movies. It's like it doesn't belong. No jokes belong here, sir. You got to get rid of that. Yeah. Um Real quick, I want to bring up a, a scene that terrified me. This is this is why I think this movie doesn't sit well. You show up, you're in the future, you're supposed to be aspirational, you're supposed to be a joyful optimism. Uh, the transporter is magic. You know, the transporter, if anybody doesn't know, you know, beam me up. It's to, It was basically made to save time on the show because you can't, you know, render a ship landing on a planet. Do you know the scene I'm talking about at the beginning, the horrifying scene? Yes. So... <laughs> Definitely. I feel really bad about this because I actually learned why they put this scene in. Uh, when this was originally supposed to be a TV show, Leonard McCoy was uh, Leonard McCoy. Sorry, <laughs> Leonard McCoy. Um, Spock was not supposed to return, so they had another Vulcan character. But when when Spock returned, they had to kill him off. So they killed him off on a transporter. And I have a scene right now where they. This is the first time you see a transporter on this movie, and it's terrifying. This is not how you start off a fun movie. So it's like Joe Dante directed it. Oh my God! It's like Quentin Tarantino couldn't direct something so terrifying. So here's the here's the transporter scene. I apologize if you get nightmares from this. Here we go. Transporter room, come in, urgent. Red line on the transporter, Mr. Scott. Transporter, do not engage. It's too do late. Not. They're beaming now. Do you read me, Starfleet? Override us. Pull them back. Give it to me. 
Starfleet, who's your mat again? We need more signal. More signal. They're losing their pattern. Oh, no. They're falling. Starfleet, do you have them? Enterprise. What we got back didn't live long, fortunately. Starfleet, Kirk. Please express my condolences to their families. It's terrifying. Yeah. You hear him screaming, and then the scream just cuts off. <laughs> just, no. Yeah, that was pretty, it was pretty gnarly. Um, I do love that that scene was in the movie, though. Yeah, I do. I do, too. Because... Honestly, Ethan, you and I talked about we have a love for seventies films. Um, yeah. Isn't there? Isn't it weird? You go back and look at some of the best films from the seventies, before like the MPAA rating system came into full bloom. You have some really dark, disturbing stuff going on here. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, we talked about Planet of the Apes, which is not fun family entertainment by today's standards. But you, like, this reminded me of. Um, I didn't realize at the time. Uh, plan, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Philip. Oh. The with one Philip with, Coughlin? Yeah, the one with um, with uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this movie was supposed to be directed by Philip Kaufman, the director of that movie. Okay. He was hired. Um, they he did they did to him what you did. He didn't know anything about Star Trek, so they just picked out five episodes to get him familiar, and he started mm-hmm. working on the film. And I imagine if he made it, this scene would still be in there. It's terrifying. Wow, that's cool. That would have been interesting. Um it probably yeah, would have been more fun, though. It probably would have been more fun because Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a fun movie, like despite all its creep- oh yeah creepiness. Both, both of them are fantastic. By yeah, the way. exactly. No, I mean I'm a fan of Philip Kaufman too. I can't name another movie off the top of my head, but I I know I've seen his yeah, other stuff. I think I saw one recently, and I can't like so, recently, like a year ago. But but no, uh, but these are characters on a on a you know family friendly show that come into this, and they're and they're doing, I think, what a lot of modern movies do, where they're, they're thinking it needs to be dark, it needs to be harder, it needs to be more violent, it needs to be rougher. And I don't th- don't think that really works as a Star Trek film. Yeah, um, it is strange. You have subtle moments of that, going back to Star Wars, in Star Wars, um, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all, all of them kind of have moments like that. Uh, but, You're talking about with the families burned to a crisp? Yeah, that, <laughs> or like the guy's arm gets cut off in the cantina. Um, the, both of those are in the first movie. And then just like random stuff here and there. Uh, it, but, but it fits in that world, though, whereas this felt very jarring, yeah. um, which... Even though I, I even though I like this scene, uh, it kind of gets your attention in a movie that by this point um, hadn't really gotten your attention. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I was into it. Um, I, I do think that the the set in the set pieces in general in this movie are um, obviously better than the show. But um, I just I, I love how they they made it feel more uh, roomy. Well, you know it's fun. Uh, can we talk about the way it looks? So yeah. this may be the most 70s looking movie I've ever seen because the 70s, they envisioned everything of the future, but everything of the future was like 1976, like Sears. And I, we'll talk about the pajamas, but the sets are so big. They are so enormous because, you know, the TV show was not any of that. It was small. It was cheap. 
it was, you know, fabricated. Uh, you see giant coliseums. Like, there's basketball court size rooms on this ship. It's giant. It, yeah, Kirk's apartment's cool, too. It is. Um, you know what's funny? Did you, ever, did you ever see Logan's Run or even uh, THX, uh, George Lucas's movie? I have not THX? seen Logan's Run. I've seen. Is that similar to, like, Death Race? Kind of. Well, the reason I bring it up, because a lot of 70s movies, especially, like, late 60s sci-fi movies or 70s, even big-budget ones, they always have this thing in common where the backgrounds are always just large bands of color. Yeah, like matte or like matte paintings or matte paintings, but like, yeah. but just single colors that make it look like they didn't decorate the set fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. This movie, this Star Trek: The Motion Picture, has so many layers, so much depth and texture to the backgrounds. There's not a single moment of this movie that looks cheap. Like this movie looks big. This and is that's a, a result of Star Wars. I feel like after Star Wars, everyone kind of had to do that stuff. If at least if they had a studio budget, they couldn't get by anymore with. I bet Star Wars came out and these studio executives were like, oh, come on, man. Now we got to try. Yeah. Well, again, it was supposed to be a TV show. Like some of the characters on the movie, uh, what was his name? And I feel bad for saying this because I'm going to have to bring up something uncomfortable. I know. I know exactly what you're going to you bring know, up. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, because he, he's the dad in Seventh Heaven. Yeah. The, da- the dad in Seventh Heaven was the star of Star Trek One. The mom in Seventh Heaven was the star of Star Trek Four. <laughs> Just so you know. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow. I did not know that. Yeah, they... Where we go from a planet-killing V'ger to save the whales in the past. Yeah. Like, Star Trek has multitudes. <laughs> so, yeah. By the way, Star Trek Four also written by Nicholas Myers and Leonard Nimoy. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, um, yeah, that's cool. I knew Leonard Nimoy was a co-writer. He's so interesting, by the way. We'll talk about him later, but he's this is a guy that took his most popular character and rejected it. And then right... He took it out of the trash when he realized it's all he had and put it back on and went for it. And he stayed with it for 50 years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, We're going to talk about him later. But um, so I want to talk about the sets. So it looks apparently the sets were so good that they kept him around for 30 years. They kept reusing them on the TV shows. Oh, really? Yeah, not like little bits and pieces. Like they they stayed Hmm. in action until they molded. So that's, that's recyclable. That's some renewable energy for you. But let's talk about the pajamas. What do you think of the oh, uniforms? Oh man, those outfits were awful. <laughs> what is this? Like the the one thing you shouldn't, you didn't need to change. Like uh, stylistically, was their outfits? It's terrible. Oh my goodness! It's the worst uniforms I've ever seen in a sci in a sci fi movie. How do you go from iconic like yellow and blue <laughs> to paj- like literally disco pajamas? Oh jeez. It, 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 yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, like it's almost, it's almost like insultingly bad. Like that should be the thing that start that Star Trek fans hate the most is those. You outfits. know what gets really bad though? Like what gets really bad as the movie progresses, like they get worse. Like, like there's a scene where William yeah. Shatner has like short sleeve pajamas and his chest hair is popping out, oh. and it's just like you get it. Like humans, yeah. e- humans stopped evolving fashion in 1976. Yeah. Like everything was jumpsuits, spandex pajamas. I bet it was comfortable. I well, bet it was so mu- the thing is there's so much like unruly fan service in this movie. Um and I mean obviously, I mean this is the first is this the first time we've ever seen fan service in anything before? I maybe well, I don't think this movie exists without it. Like that's the yeah, thing. But but the, but fan service was a new idea. This might be the first time anyone had ever seen it and so you know, the producers, directors didn't know what to do with it, so for all intents and purposes, they did did a pretty good job with it. But with all this fan service, um, they couldn't. They, they decided to ditch 
the one thing that they ditched was the outfits. It just, it's incredible. Yeah, that was the first thing to go, you know what? No. Like, they were burned. And let's be fair, the next film has very good outfits. Like, yeah. very fun. Iconic, I would say. Yeah. So, but, um, so let's, let's, we've talked about the pajamas. We talked about the story. So you're, I know you and I talked a little bit, but I'm curious how you feel as someone just coming into the franchise. So you don't, you don't come in with the baggage of these characters uh, being watched and rewatched for 10 years in syndication. So for you, it's not so much a homecoming. So this movie has to stand on its own. Yeah. And so be, be truthful here. How does the, how does Star Trek, the motion picture stand on its own? Um, I think, <clears throat> I think it benefited me to not know the series that well. Like you said, uh, this is a reworking of the changeling and I have no idea what that is. Um, so to me, the concept of this, I, I, the twist was awesome. I was like, Whoa, what? That's the twist. Like I, I, it was very slow in some moments. Um, I had to rewind a couple of scenes cause I had no idea what was happening. But, um, that said, if I watched it again, I think, um, it would be a while, but it would be a while from now. Cause it's, it's a very slow watch, but if I did, I think it would be uh, better. Cause I would, I would be already know what to expect. But with that said, the, the twist at the end was very good. I think that as far as a, my favorite Star Trek episodes that I had watched were the ones that were the premises were very like, uh, like almost like ethereal. Like it was, it was like abstract. Very sick. It is very sixties. Yeah, exactly. And 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 those are my favorite things because those to me were the things that were so different from Star Wars because I didn't want to watch something that was like just like a different version of Star Wars, which in my head, that's what Star Trek was going to be. And so I liked the fact that there were some more abstract concepts than uh, not to say Star Wars isn't abstract because it isn't at times, but it's also it's also very um, accessible. Mm -hmm. Whereas I liked the inaccessibility of the Star Trek uh, plots of the show. And this movie felt along those lines. Let me ask you a question. Compare and contrast. First start with Star Wars. Um, People have said that Star Wars is basically fantasy and not sci-fi. You know, I mean, that's, we're, we're, you know, we're, um, you know, we're nitpicking over genres, but it's true in a way. Sure. Whereas... You know, science fiction is kind of irrelevant to Star Wars. You could put yeah, it's it. It's not hard sci-fi. It's no not hard sci-fi. You could easily. I mean, think about. It. I mean, George Lucas himself said he based it on a Kurosawa film. You know, The Hidden Fortress. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, it works. I mean, they're going to other planets, but they might as well just be going down the street. I think the prequels are more hard sci-fi than they get the there. Yeah. yeah, they get there, and I think the modern Star Wars movies are completely sci-fi, which kind of reduces their charm a little bit. Yeah. But um, but no, I mean, whereas Star Trek itself was a wet was a western. You know, yeah. and I think the movies, specifically the Nicholas Myers movies, transformed it more into like a nautical adventure, which we can get into a little bit, which mm, I think is a fun, which I think is a fun genre change as well. Yeah. But I will say this though, um, whereas Star Wars uh, relies on character tropes and situations that could be replicated in most, you could easily, like I said, put them in anything. Star Trek leans heavily into science, it yes. leans heavily into logic and engineering. And I think that's why people, uh, specifically nerdy people, like people who are into science and technology, they love it so much because it feels grounded even though it's in space. And I think, you know, Gene Roddenberry's credit, he had some of the best sci-fi writers of the day writing for the show. 
for better oh, for there, worse. There were some incredible quotes that I should. I, I just <laughs> texted them to myself as I was watching the show, and I, I don't even know where they are at, at this point. But there are some incredible lines from the TV show that um, I just couldn't believe were actual quotes from a show, uh, let alone like a cheap sci-fi, quote-unquote cheap sci-fi show from the 60s. Um, yeah, the writing's incredible. The, uh, the Like you said, the grasp on logic and like just philosophy. and I mean, Roddenberry, whoever was writing these shows had to have some like incredible wealth of knowledge in um uh just literature and 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 just yeah philosophy and stuff um it's incredible well there's um like william shatner recounts in his one of his one of his biographies he's got several several uh that when star trek ended he was basically homeless he bought himself a little uh camper and traveled around the country doing plays and he he was camping out when you know apollo 11 happened they landed on the moon and a little kid came up to him and knocked on his trailer and said, he's like, can I help you? And the little kid said, where's Spock? And, and Shatner said, oh, he's on the moon. Because, <laughs> and that's when he had an idea that this show had an impact beyond you know, just a television show, is that people were watching people land on the moon. And I think maybe that, sci you know, that uh, science, um, not science fiction, but science hysteria of the late 60s helped contribute to this desire to learn more about this like this really was the final frontier for us you know we'd been to the west i mean the western itself was a dying genre at the time you know this it was being spent it was only oh, yeah. being kept alive by people like clint eastwood who were doing like and, uh, italian know, director yeah so. exactly spaghetti westerns that were making it i hate to say making it more fun you know making it less realistic i mean i'm sorry john wayne but your your era was over <laughs> i'm sorry yeah you know, that it just didn't have that impact. So you had to go to space. But even though you're in space, you're still telling stories. And I think this is the part I, this is my second question. So you're coming into this movie, uh, not, you know, without the baggage of the characterizations. So if you are a fan of the show, you're probably expecting that camaraderie ship, that those, you know, the character, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the dynamics. The dynamics, but more like the chemistry. Because for for everything and for all its faults, Star Trek had one thing better than any other show at the time. Probably, on, to be honest with you, maybe better than any TV show that's ever been. Uh, the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know McCoy, mm -hmm. and plus you had all the secondary characters who all became iconic, which is unheard of for a television show. Yeah, you had this show that was based in the '60s. Um, it was the most racially diverse. It was the most ethnically diverse. I mean, you had Japanese characters after World War II. You had Russian characters during the middle of a Cold War. You know, you had a you had a black character, Uhura. You know, Star Trek is famous for having the first black kiss, right? But you know what I think that obscures a little bit is how how interesting a character she is besides just being a kiss yeah. component. Like the show is interesting, um, and you have this movie, and it sort of poo poos on that a little bit. It doesn't include any of it. Yeah. What do you think yeah. of that? The characterization was probably my personal biggest uh, gripe with it because, I mean, I only watched a handful of episodes, but I still was into, I mean, I have so much respect for William Shatner now, even, uh, I didn't know a lot about him, I, I hadn't seen a lot of stuff that he's been in. He's an interesting uh, guy, yeah. He's a, Yeah, but as far as an actor, though, I, I, like, he was giving some of the best television performances that I had seen, at least the first season, where before he kind of got a little um, self-caricatured, I think, but... Uh, yeah, and, and and yeah, the chemistry with him and Nimoy and, and uh, DeForest Kelly was it? Mm -hmm. 
was really good, and in the movie, uh, the first movie, that is, it was not there at all. Uh, it, like I said, it was somebody was writing for Captain Kirk instead of allowing Shatner to be Captain Kirk, um, and I just don't think that it works. Same with, with Nimoy. I think Spock was, was catatonic. Yes. Uh, DeForest Kelly was was probably the most the closest. Yeah, because he's not as deep of a character. Well, he's can but... he's cantankerous. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. to say the least. I mean, like he he was still fun to see. He was he's always like a silly, uh, like third wheel. Um, but yeah, definitely the characterizations were the worst. I um part. two things. Um, it's also the emergence of Scotty's mustache. Can we just say this? Scotty okay, didn't have yeah. Scotty didn't have a mustache, and he hadn't quite ballooned out to be obese like he was in the later movies yeah he was getting a little pudge but he was always like the you know he, he was always like he was the stereotypical scottish character who always you know drunk but he was a he was a miracle worker but um i did catch one scene in the movie that had a sliver of that banter and i i got a little clip of it because it stands out because it's all there is yeah. so it's towards the end of it but here we go this is when scotty i'm sorry uh spock and talking to bones here we go here's a little banter Science officer Spock, reporting as ordered, Captain. Please sit down. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. No, have you, Doctor? As your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates. See, it's funny. That's a good line. It's funny. Yeah. But that's what the whole show was filled with. The whole show was filled with that banter. And if you were, you know, it wasn't like dumbed down or anything, but you got it. Like, that's really funny. Like, Leonard Nimoy's very funny. It's just, it's dry fun. But the movie doesn't have a lot of it. It has like one bit, and you heard it. Yeah, the movie is very, is very dry. There's not a lot of personality to it, for sure. But, but let's take the movie on its own. Let's just, I think you said the same. Like, this was a great science fiction movie, regardless of the Star Trek parts. Mm-hmm. And it's ponderous, but it's ponderous in the way 2001 is. It's not ponderous like the way. It's not freeform, even like the way Aliens is. Or no, know, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not intense like that. It's it's a thinking movie. It makes you think, and like you said, when you learn, when you learn the the twist, it's pretty cool. Like, and yeah. when you see the scale of it, like, and you know, let's just say it, like, it's a good effects film. Like the effects are earned, and you you're supposed to be impressed. Look how much money we have. You can't see me, but I'm throwing money at the screen. Look at all this money, 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 money. Look at all this. Yeah. Um, now, I know he's controversial, right? I know he's controversial, but let's just talk about the new leads, okay? Stephen Decker. Collins as Decker, and of yeah. course, the late, great uh, Persis Kambata, you know, passed away as the the new science officer, the bald lady. I'll just call her the bald chick because that's what it refers to her. Yeah. Um, she gets she gets scanned and basically consumed and spit out as a, as a, uh, as a tracker, you know, as a, a probe. Uh, she's a robot. But she still retains her memories. And you have that interaction between these two. And, you know, the movie concludes the only way it could. we got to get rid of them because there's, <laughs> they're not going to be here for the sequel. I will ask you, are they ever referenced again in other Star um, Trek lore? Or is I, this pretty much it? I don't think so. And Prequels-wise or anything? And we've been dancing around this a little bit, but we have to just, if you're curious. The, re- the reason we say the Decker character is problematic, and I think the character itself is good, and I think the actor is mm-hmm. good in this movie – um, the actor in real life um, no longer has a career because of his behaviors. We'll just say that. Yeah. Um, which is sad because I think it puts a stain on this movie a little bit because I do think he is good in this movie as a foil for Kirk. 
Yeah. Um, but 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 as a uh, as the lore, I don't think Star Trek would touch this character with a ten foot pole. Now, could, yeah, yeah, okay. But, I don't know if maybe they had brought it. It had come back in a later series or anything. I, I don't um, I don't think much from this movie has come like back. Voyager. So is Voyager? I, I said people are yelling at me. Yeah. Um, is Voy- is Voyager take place after this? Um, I talked I, I talked to our producer Chris, who has watched every episode of everything. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Uh, he tells me that Deep Space Nine. I'm sorry. Uh, the Next Generation takes place sometime after this, like 100 to almost 200 years later. Um, which allowed them to bring back this, the original cast in cameos in weird ways, um, mm. you know, specifically Leonard Nimoy as Spock. Um, and then Deep Space Nine takes place parallel, and I think Voyager takes place right after because there is character interaction. I think Enterprise is considered a prequel, so it takes place before the OG series. Okay. And then you have Discovery, which is another prequel. Then you have Brave New Worlds, which is an uber prequel. And then you have Picard, which is a sequel to Next Generation. So. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, I was wondering because obviously Veer is Voyager. I didn't know if yeah. is that the same Voyager as the show. No, that's the Voyager probe, like from NASA. Oh, got it. Okay, so it's the Voyager, <laughs> that, like the actual yeah. real world Voyager. Okay. Yeah, I think that, I think uh, I think it. the I think the premise of Voyager, the show, is that their ship got blasted into an uncharted thing of space. They have to survive. Like it's an interesting okay. concept. Like I I like I love the Janeway character. You know, uh, like she's she's a great character, but um. But no, I mean, going back to this though, you know, when you explore, it takes a while to get to Viger. They go on that epic journey where they get out of the ship, and it looks so—it's just matte paintings, but it looks yeah. so good. It—it looks so expansive. It and does. It, it does look really good. Yeah. But there's there's tense to there's it's like the Lord of the Rings. It's you're going on a journey in space. You're going into this, and it's it's terrifying. But you you feel I I can't imagine what it's like to be in the theater watching this for the first time. And I'm a little disappointed in myself because this movie was in theaters like two weeks ago. They put it back in theaters. Because the, of the, the oh, remaster. Oh, the first one? Yeah, the remaster. Yeah, oh, was, wow. Yeah, okay, because I was going to say Wrath of Khan was the anniversary. Yes. Came out. Uh, yeah. We should say that the anniversary of Wrath of Khan was last week, the 40th mm-hmm. anniversary. So it's just it's just happenstance we're doing this now. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in this, but... I can't imagine what it's like being in a theater to hear like the sound coming in, like the, a nice sound system with a nice display. I think this movie, um, and I want to, I want to get into this real quick before we head out uh, to the next movie. You know, we talked, you and I talked about Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. and I know you haven't seen it yet. Uh, you're the only one who hasn't seen it yet. Apparently, the whole world has. But My that wife was a, hasn't seen it either. Well, go pause, <laughs> come back, edit. No. Okay. But it's it's you've heard a lot has been talked about that movie being a theatrical movie, like yeah. people have specifically said you need to see this in a theater, and I thought to myself, well, if the movie is good, you could see it at home. Exactly. Yeah. But you, it's better in a theater. It's better in a theater. <laughs> it's yeah. Better in a theater. It's not like what, yeah, there were a couple movies that came out during the pandemic, and people were like, oh, this movie just isn't like uh, one that's standing out to me is the Godzilla vs King Kong. Or is it King Kong versus Godzilla? Whatever. Um, I watched. I don't, I don't take I watched, sides. I don't take sides. <laughs> well, King Kong's objectively better. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I do like him better, but uh, I watched it at home. I hated it, and a Christian, our our uh, colleague, mm-hmm. watched it in theaters, and he loved it. And and I said, oh, it's it just doesn't feel like it's you know it feels like it's it's only good because it would be it would only be good if it was in if it were in theaters. Which doesn't make, which by default makes it not a good movie. Whereas Christian said it was good to see a movie in theaters, and it was just like, okay, 
is it good because it, it you know you know what i'm saying i understand Whereas no no i i, I like understand dune yeah. people like dune whether they watched it at home or in theaters even though i thought it was dry as as toast but dry as sand dry as salt oh my goodness it, but, was, um, it was one act but but here's the thing though you're you're right and you're wrong and the fact is a movie can be good if it's in a theater if it's built for that audience like yeah. if 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 it's designed that way like myself do you remember the tra- you remember the trailer for Star Wars uh, Special Edition? Uh, you, you're in the theater. You remember this? It's like and it's the, on the giant screen is a tiny little TV, and you see like the X-wing fighters, and the words are for a generation. This is the only way they've experienced Star Wars, and all of a sudden it goes, it zooms in at giant screen, and it's exciting, and you're like, oh yeah, I get it now. Like this, this movie, the '96 one, the '96 '97 one, or yeah, whatever '97, yeah. It's a great commercial because it makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my god, I could see this. And we're starting to see this more and more now where older films are being, you know, prettied up and put back in theaters. And you and I talked about this, about, you know, the dynamic about how movies of the future are basically going to be big budget, huge blockbusters, and I think re-releases. And I think that might be the way to go because that's how it used to be. Movies would be re-released in theaters. That's how you saw them. There was no home video. There was no DVD. There was no Blu-ray, no streaming. You saw you saw Fantasia in theaters, or you didn't see Fantasia at all. And that's how it was. And here's one for you. I've heard people, like in, people in the industry, who have talked about how the future of cinema is also going to start incorporating TV shows, where once mm-hmm. a week you're, it's going to be appointment viewing. You're going to buy your ticket watch the next episode They've done it already. of The Mandalorian. Um, yeah, and people are starting to do this. And But it's going to come to the, the point where there are going to be some shows that are exclusively watched in theaters. Shows like The Mandalorian, Obi-Wan. Like, if you had to pay a ticket, if you had to buy a ticket to watch Obi-Wan, you don't think people would have paid, would have, you know what I'm saying? I well, like you, you, you buy a subscription. Maybe maybe if you pay for the whole season ahead of time, you save some money. But I mean, that think about how many hours of, of of TV that is versus how many hours of a movie that would be. It would be cheaper in the long run. Plus, you would get to see it on a big screen. Well, I think it's the way to go. It's happened before in small doses with Star Wars. Um, when the Clone Wars animated series came out years uh, ago. Yeah. They actually took the two episodes and they stitched them together and they put them in theaters. Like a backdoor thing or whatever. No, it was literally a movie in theaters. It was just two TV episodes. Oh um, yeah, was that the was that the um, that was like the O three that was just called Clone Wars, not the the Clone Wars, right? It was it was it was the the one the show that actually turned by all accounts turned out to be pretty good about Anakin the, and and um, Obi Wan. Okay, it was the CG. first one. It was the CG. Two thousand three one. Yeah, not the. Glenn Gendy Tarnovsky one, not the two minute ones, but like the actual. CG oh, okay, one. okay, got it. Um, so, but yeah, they put that in theaters. Warner Brothers owned the owned the rights. Um, they and Disney put a Marvel show. I forget what it's called. The show was canceled immediately, but they put two episodes in theaters to test it out, and it, it bombed. So, I mean, I I agree with you. I think we're going to see some exciting things, but I think the spectacle of having something on a big screen needs to be aided by an audience that's receptive for it. And yeah. when we talked about The Last Dragon year, a year ago, there's that awesome scene in that movie. And I, oh, I told you, yeah, you and yeah. I both like this movie. Um, I will defend it. As cheesy as it is, um, in The Last so Dragon, good. they're watching, they're, you know, there's this ghetto theater, and they're all watching, you know, Enter the Dragon. And the audience is into it. They're eating popcorn. They know all the lines. They know this movie. But they're not there for the movie. They're there because they're with other people. And and going back to Top Gun Maverick, which I've seen, um, probably the I told you I mean we exaggerate you think I exaggerated, one of the best movie experiences I've ever had. Yeah. 
And I, I really wish I was lying to you. I wish I was exaggerating. I wish I was just, oh, I'm so starved for water. What did, what did Steve Jobs say? Steve Jobs said, oh, it's like offering, he said iTunes was like offering a man in hell a glass of ice water. You know, it's, no, Top Gun Maverick is a theatrical movie that was built for the theaters first and foremost. It was delayed because of that. You see why when you see it. But that wouldn't have worked That would if it wasn't a good film. And I'm wondering if I go see Star, if I could see Star Trek the motion picture on the big screen again, would I like it even more? Because I can appreciate all the work that went into it that's just not present on my TV. I have a nice TV. I have a really nice TV. Don't get me wrong, but still, I wonder what it'd be like with fans. Yeah, I, I and and fans who are into it, like I've yeah, you see, you watch like um, on the flip side, I've seen movies in theaters that were amazing. The crowd was great, and then I watched it again. Exactly. Like, super excited at home, and then it's not went, so much. Like uh, like I remember I saw this random rat race with like Seth Green and oh, yeah. Goldberg and stuff. I watched it in theaters when it came out. I was a teenager. It was, was fun. Maybe it was like 13. The crowd, it was a riot. Yep. People were like like standing up during jail. Like it was hysterical. I watched it I watched it uh, at home um, probably five years ago and I was like, okay, it's funny, but it's not like as fun as watching it with a crowd who's into it. Um, that's just one po- example I, that popped in my head. But yeah, th- there's a flip side too to that. I had that exact same experience with Austin Powers Gold Member, where oh, the, yeah. where I don't think I've ever laughed harder at a movie. I like people were really into like the first the first five minutes of that. Ironically, with Tom Cruise and Danny DeVito uh-huh. and everything, and Kevin Spacey. Uh oh, I said Kevin Spacey. Um, but you go home and you watch it by yourself, and there's something missing. And I think and I think Star Trek. This is a good way to segue into the second one, is that you are friends with these characters. And I think, I think let's go into Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, um, because I think this is a good place to segue, is you want more of these characters. These char- you, still, you, you know there's a chance, but Star Trek is not going to continue if it's still this more abound. Like I put in my notes, this movie, the first movie vacillates between like portentous and pretentious. And I still think it's watchable. I still love it for what it is. But I can see why everybody considers the Wrath of Khan their favorite Star Trek movie, or most people do. Oh, I can I can see it totally. Uh, especially it's it feels the most entertaining. Well, I haven't seen anything past this movie, but um, compared to the first one, it's definitely more entertaining. Well, you do you remember the the end line of the motion picture says the human adventure is just beginning. Yeah. Like you feel like okay, there's still hope. We can we still got this, right? We still got mm-hmm. this. We can we can work with this, and. You know, the, the motion picture is still the most profitable of all the Star Trek movies overall. Like, I think it got beat eventually by, like, The Voyage Home, the one with the whales. But let's, yeah. t- let's talk about Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, directed by, written and directed by Nicholas Myers, released June 4th, 1982, starring all the cast. But I but joining the cast, of course, is Kirstie Alley, Paul Winfield, and da-da-da-da, Ricardo Maltobaum himself, the star, the star of the show, him and his big old chest. And his quaff. He's great. I love the hair and I love the chest. The quaff, the whole look. It's just Mad Max meets heavy metal meets space. It's just, it's something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. They I definitely lo- went, they went all out with his hair. So, like you said, um, it, like the first movie, it's kind of base. It's a sequel to Originals episode called Space Seed, um, which I wonder if this makes this the first motion picture sequel to a TV show. It is interesting because because <clears throat> for all intents and purposes, at least from what I've heard, like the the movies have no. This is the only thing that's connected to one of the episodes, correct? Other um, than characters, but... I'm pretty sure there might be like it, odds and ends, but generally speaking, 
not really. Like I, I think, and I think this movie works um, fabulously. Like you don't need to have seen it. You don't need to yeah. have seen the original episode. Um, full disclosure, I had never seen Space Seed until like last year. I've seen Wrath of Khan a oh, hundred okay. times, but I've never seen Space Seed. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And, and well, on that same tip, like you have the chick who's his girlfriend or his ex girlfriend. And he has the son with her. And then I thought that was from something I had missed from the show. I was like, wait a second. I never saw this episode. And it turns out they are just implying everything. Yeah, they're implying everything. They're, they're just making it up as they go along. But I, yeah. I, I think it's okay because I think going forward you can add to the, the lore. But going backwards and retrofitting, which they do with yeah, Star Wars exactly. a lot, is, is uncomfortable to me. Yeah, you can't like, retcon something as big as Star Wars or Star Trek, I don't think. Exactly. Like you can tr- which I think they have you shouldn't, tried. You shouldn't, yeah. I think they have been doing that. Um, but I think it's so controversial. I think you, you mentioned the JJ Abrams films. They they literally have split those off. They call them what, the Kelvin timeline or whatever. Like they literally say they're in a different time zone uh, time zone, sorry. <laughs> We're on Pacific time. Uh, but no, it's you know, they're a different universe, but they still exist they you know, there's interplay between the two. Um, yeah. I'm not that nerdy, and I'm not that specific, so I, I apologize. Uh, but but let's talk about this real quick. Um, this is a much smaller budgeted film. It feels like it. It does not feel as um, epic as the original film. It, I don't want to say cheaper. I don't know if that's the right word. I would say more economical, mm-hmm. if that means anything. Um, but I think it's a smaller budget. Uh, the story's tighter. And I think the one thing they nail, and I think they nail it better than all of them, is the characters. They get it right. They get it right. And I think this is the movie that people wanted from the first one. Yeah. So, yeah, totally. And I, and I think it kind of, uh, you can see how it was kind of trying to match a little bit of the Star Wars momentum um, while still staying true to Star Trek. And I think it did that brilliantly. Because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be Star Wars, where it's so many... Movie, every, pretty much every sci-fi movie that came out uh, in the late 70s and early 80s felt like it was trying to be Star Wars. But this one felt like it took the best notes from the Star Wars, uh, like the entertainment factor from Star Wars, but then did it with its own canon. I've I've read else I've read elsewhere that this movie, like the style of this film, and let's talk about this. If the temperature of the first movie is 2001, and like I said, it's epic, it's it's opaque sci-fi. This is more fun freewheeling adventure and I was um, I've read Nicholas Meyer's book I, I think I, gave, I sent you a copy uh, he talks about what it was like and he basically based this his Star Trek on Horatio Hornblower you know the the, the great Aaron, uh, the great nautical adventures which you know are their own literary phenomenon you've I don't know if it's related exactly but I think the same guy wrote the Master and Commander series and right uh, now Forrester you can't you can't hear it but all those nautical fans are screaming to the sun, just like they're joining the Star Trek fans. And go, how dare you? You don't know lore. Ah. But no, well, we've, we've united them. So we've good. united them. Like, you know what? Let's get a beer. Uh, but no, it's true though. I mean, you know, these it this is putting Star Trek as a naval thing because you forget the Federation is a is a exploratory, but they're also military, and yeah. I think that returns it to it. I think the way it looks, and I think across the board, this looks more fun. Can we just say that? The oh, sets yeah, are definitely. more fight. The set, the, the the pajamas are gone, you know. The yeah. the intensity is gone, and it's replaced with this colorful, cheerful, optimistic view. Everyone's winking and they're having fun. I think, and I think that's palatable. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, and and it feels more episodic. I think mm-hmm. like the show did, um, whereas the first one feels like it's trying to be like an event. It feels like it's it, there's too much weight behind it. Um, 
understandably so, but still, this one felt like, okay, it's just a long episode. Um, and it, it worked because of that. It wasn't trying to be... It was just trying to be another, you know, basically give fans what they wanted that they loved from the show, and it wasn't trying to be anything more. It gave them that, but it also, I think it also gave them characters that aged, and I think this is important, that you have characters yeah, that are getting older, yeah. and... I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when um, the scene when you first see Kirk and Khan go at it on the screen, and Kirk's looking at the computer, but every time he looks away, he brings out his glasses because he can't see, and then he takes them off to look at Khan, you know, Khan puts them back yeah. on because he doesn't want to be embarrassed that he needs glasses. Yeah. Like, it's little human touches like that. Um, it's little things like that that make it a lot of fun, like little characterizations because you're not watching – you're not watching roles, you're watching characters, and you're watching these great character actors – you know, be the characters that they defined, and I think that's I think that's completely on on screen here. I think this movie is so much fun to watch. Um, I think, but I was telling you before, Ethan, I've read elsewhere, and I don't know if it's true, but I know other directors have credited. It. But this is essentially the template for every Marvel movie you've ever seen. Like yeah. you have this pre-existing universe, this connected universe, right? You're coming in with backstory from other things. But the characters are presented. You have a big, strong bad guy. You have banter between everyone. Everyone's, you know, in between the action. We're talking with each other. We're telling jokes. We're we're doing a little character motivation. We're advancing the plot. Action again. Happy. Well, not in this movie, happy ending, but you know, most movie. Oh, and there we go. Let's kill off a main character and bring him back, just like every Marvel movie. Yeah, it does feel. It does. It, it, I didn't really think about it, I guess, in that in that regard, because Marvel just feels so distant from everything now. Um, but yeah, it does feel like that. As far as just the the tempo of everything that Marvel does now, it felt like the cutesy jokes and like the the winks and the Easter eggs uh, and all that stuff. And again, the big baddie though. Like, let's talk about Khan yeah. real quick. Let's talk about Ricardo Montalban as one of the great screen villains of all time. It was like a comic book villain almost. Like It felt like a comic book. Well, in the original Space Seed, as I went back, you know, he was a, a member of some genetic testing thing. He was, a, you know, his people were rising up. They froze, you know, they went into space. They, they went into cryogenic sleep in 1992, by the way. So they got that off. Um, they woke up. Kirk rescued them. They tried to take over the ship. And instead of killing them, Kirk basically sentenced them to live out their lives on this planet. And in this movie, I guess motivation is, is that their planet was destroyed. They had to move. You know, their the new their new place was inhospitable, as you saw. And they're mad that his Kirk wife never, died. Yep. Yeah, from uh, how do you cause of death would be what space creature to the neck or the ear? Yeah, he crawled in. She, the creature crawled in her ear and then killed her, basically. Yep. To be fair, though, in the in the in the TV show, she was basically a traitor. So. Oh know? yeah, she she yeah <laughs> she was. I I was surprised she even left in the first place. She was crazy. This is um, why this is why they don't have women on starships. But they, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. By the way, the original show was filled with that type of language. Can we just? Say that? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> also, by the way, he he is like a, he has superpowers. He had, he is a supervillain. Yeah, he's he's gene- yeah he's genetically yeah. he's he's genetically enhanced. Yeah. And he could pick people up. He's got the, that amazing hair, which somehow changed styles to match the '80s. Like, like I said, he's from Mad Max, apparently. But, uh, yeah. but he's he's super smart. He's all this stuff. But they, but even though you know Kirk and Khan never share a scene, they do have those tit for tats. They have that banter, and it feels like a chess game, doesn't it? Like the way they talk to each other, the way they interact with each other. And um, you and I were chatting about this before. 
But if you ever read Meyer's book, if you ever read interviews with Ricardo Montalban, by the way, RIP, the great Ricardo Montalban, um, there's a very touching scene that almost made me a little teary-eyed where Myers talked about hiring him and about how he was basically like a washed-up TV actor. You know, I think he was doing Fantasy Island at the time. Yeah, I was going to see why I couldn't remember the timeline of that. But, but I mean, let's be fair. That show, is, that show has been rebooted 20 times. It never works. It doesn't work yeah. without Ricardo Montalbán. It does not yeah. work without Ricardo I love Ricardo that. Montalbán. The original, when I was a kid, my grandma watched oh, it yeah. every single day. The plane, uh, the plane. And it was awesome. Yeah, uh, her Villages was his name or something. Yeah, he died, though. He was. He had a – Yeah. that man had a rough life. Like, if you yeah, want to read oh, about yeah. – oh, goodness. Um, he hang, Did he hang himself? I think so. He shot himself. I think shot he, himself. Um, yeah, he killed himself. But he, uh, he had a, whoo. Just read about him. Yeah. Um, I, the last thing I ever saw him do where he was humiliating himself doing Dunkin' Donuts commercials, and oh, like he man. would go the eclair, the eclair, the donut, the donut, and it's like, oh my goodness. But um, Ricardo Montalban was basically washed up TV actor who had done like he had done Asian face in Hawaii Five O, where he had to play a Japanese guy. He had to. Oh my goodness! Um, even in Star Trek, he played a Sikh. I mean, this character—this oh, really? character is supposed to be a Sikh. Is he really? Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. I guess. Yeah, like it's, it's it, you know how Star, you know how sixties were like. Yeah, 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 yeah. White people and Italians could be anything. So, <laughs> you want to be a and Native Char- American? And Charlton Heston. And Charlton Heston. <laughs> so, but Charlton Heston would beat them all, um, and then kiss the apes. So he would too. I'm not making that up. Look it up. He kissed the apes. Uh, but he could get away with it. He was Moses. So, but going back to it though, he um, he's performing for Nicholas Myers. He's doing this great. He's reading his lines, and he looks at Nicholas Myers, and he says, "Was that okay?" And Nicholas Myers just looks at him, sad. And he says, "This is here's this great actor, you know, performing schlock, and he's asking me if it's okay." And he said, he looked at him, and he said, "You should be performing Shakespeare. You should be on King Lear." He says, oh, no, no, with my accent, no one, he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. He's like, you speak so eloquently, like, the moment you start talking, no one, no one will care. You know, he just, he admired the man so much. And let's be fair, this, this movie resurrected his career. He had a great career after this, long time. And so, yeah, that's how you do it, man. You get a big buff chest, you play a bad guy, and you, that's how you do it. You get some memorable lines. And he has, yeah. and he's pretty cool. He's very cool, um, and he's so wicked in this. <laughs> his eyes, you, like I love when he yeah. talks because he knows how to use his eyes for the screen. Oh my goodness! Um, I do have a good, I have, I mean, I do have a clip from this movie. It's it's the clip. You know what I'm talking about? The most famous clip in this movie. Can you guess it? Um, when people maybe? reference this movie, what's the one thing they reference more than anything else? Oh. I don't know. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this clip because it, it's apropos of what we're talking about. So okay. let us do it real quick. Here is Con and Con excuse me. Con and Kirk, the two Ks. Here we go. Con bloodsucker. You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you Kirk? Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still, old friend. You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. 
I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. You should uh, go back and watch that clip and watch William Shatner's face because he contorts it and he starts squeezing his lip and he's like, "This is he's emoting this line like he's like he thinks he's going to get an an Oscar for it." He yeah. gives it. He gives it it all. <laughs> it's really fun. He's like, oh. he, where, where did the thing start? Uh, and he has remnants of it or early early um, examples of it in the TV show where he does the thing. Oh, this like, and you're talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, where um, did that come from? Like, it actually he does it a little bit. It actually doesn't really come from the show. It actually comes from the third movie, like most of it. Ah. So there's a scene in the third movie, and I'm going to say something to you that will not make any sense, but I promise you if you watch the movie, it will make perfect sense. There's a scene when he's kicking Christopher Lloyd in the face, <laughs> and because okay. Christopher Lloyd plays the bad guy, and awesome. he's kicking him on the side of a mountain, because I won't spoil it for you, but... Uh, the bad guy had killed someone close to Kirk, right? Okay. And as he's kicking him off the mountain, he goes, I have had enough of you! And he <laughs> kicks him off. And, uh, green screen. And, I mean, he does that a little, but William Shatner is actually a really, really good actor. And he's oh, actually yeah, he really great. good as Kirk, like, in the show, too. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, like I said, I was shocked by how good of a, of a t- television actor. Uh, you know, there was a yeah. time when, like, television acting was considered less than movie acting, which television actors being really, really good is kind of a new thing. It's a new thing because TV was where you went to die. Like, yeah, exactly. But you've, are you telling me you've never seen Incubus, the 1966 film filmed in Esperanto starring William Shatner? <laughs> I've not seen that. No uh, one, ha- no one has. It, yeah, no one has. But I, we, did, we did talk about the one movie with Shatner that was directed by, uh, what's his name? Um, you, we, yeah, Roger Corman. Uh, what was it called? The Intruder? I think. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, you were telling me about that. Yeah, great film. Have you seen it? Like, he, he no, plays I didn't this. Watch it yet. Yeah, he plays a hate preacher that goes to town to, like, sort of seed racial hatred and stir up animosity. And he's really good in this. Like, he's a really good actor, but he just found his, his niche on television. Yeah. And um, not to get into it, I, I think I mentioned this before, but I think you could make an argument that William Shatner is the most successful television actor in history. Like, I don't even think that's a question. I didn't say best, but I think most successful. Like, he's still doing it. Man, he went into space this year. Yeah. The William only other person, The only person I think that can give him a run for his money is uh, Ju- uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Uh, Louis I think she's... Um, possibly. I think, but she's... I think only... that's the closest thing that you could find for, like, as pro- like prolific. Maybe, like, Kelsey Grammer? I don't know. Well, and by the way, Kelsey Grammer was in Star Trek at some point. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, but uh, but uh, but when you look at Shatner, though, he started off, you know, he he's done Twilight Zone, he did Star Trek in the '70s, he had T.J. Hooker, you know, he had Rescue yeah. 911. He's been he was the most famous television pitchman with you know the Priceline. He's been on oh, yeah. Boston Legal. He's been Boston on Legal. Boston Public. He's won, you know, he's been on Third Rock from the Sun. He's been on so many things, and he's just he's become 
he's gone from stereotype to lovable. He's released hardcore rock albums. He's done all this stuff. And people, what did they call him? They called him a has-been, but he said, what did he say? He said, better to be a has-been than it never was. Yeah. But the, but the truth is, again, he went into space this year. You know, I That's mean, this, this is a big deal for him. You know, it's, so, I mean, he's been consistently, he's never been out of the public spotlight. He's always been famous. He's always been in our eyes, but he's just, you know, he's just sort of been in the background. And, yeah. and so, like I said, I, I got to give him credit for, you know, just providing a lot of that. But, it, but I think you start seeing through the Star Trek movies, him transforming from a serious actor into almost a comedian. Like he's embraced that persona now. He's all funny now. I think that's what he is all the time. He's he's learned his craft and he's become joyful, like a joyful old ninety year old, you know, uncle. That's just yeah. Have you seen Fanboys? I haven't seen Fanboys. Oh, it's great. Um, there's a scene I haven't seen it in a while, but there's a scene where he's in it at like a Star Trek convention. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I, I that was back before I had even seen like the J.J. Abrams ones. This, I think the movie came out like '08, maybe. Well, um, good movie. I think it was a mistake in the first Star Trek remake when they had Chris Pine like try to act like William Shatner at the end of it. Like yeah. he's he's doing the mannerisms. He's like he's like, where are we going? He's shaking his head. He's trying to do the thing. He doesn't do that. He never he never did that again. Like he's his own thing now. Yeah, he's a, he was a good choice. I, I think the of the remake, the best casting I think was Zachary Quinto. Um, I think he was. I think it was Carl Urban. To be um, honest with you, I and I was gonna say as which shocked lo- me. <laughs> looks wise, I think Carl Urban was really really good. Um, and then Anton Yelkin was really good too. And uh, Simon Pegg was great. I mean, like I like the remake the of what they are. Great, the, yeah, the cast is really good in the in the J.J. Abrams one. They had good. Cro- I mean, the, I I don't always agree with the the story or the characterizations, but. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, they, they brought Leonard Nimoy back to be Spock, like yeah. the Spock. Cumberbatch, I think might've been even the worst choice. He, he was, he was not the choice. He was supposed to be, um, what's his name? Um, goodness, I'm good. Benicio, Samuel L. Jackson. Benicio, oh. Benicio Del Toro was supposed to be gone. Really? Oh, that would have been cool. He had the right accent. He had the right accent. What happened with that? Didn't work out. And my got, goodness, he's in everything. How did yep. he? I know. That's like the easiest guy. It's like, oh, we couldn't get <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. How did you not get Samuel L. Jackson? I can get, you, get I can get you Samuel L. Jackson tonight. <laughs> yeah, I can get you Benicio del Toro for like my my home video if I wanted to. I think he's one of those actors that maybe had blew his chance to be prestigious. Like he yeah. kind of like did the Liam Neeson thing before he was ready. He, yeah, he did. Tra- was it traffic? Oh, and... I mean, he's great though. I mean, I, I love Benicio del Toro. Don't get me wrong. Oh, he's really good. But um, but no, I just uh, yeah, he would have been better. But honestly, that. I mean, let's talk about this. This movie was remade in 2013. It was remade as Star Trek Into Darkness, for all intents and purposes. Uh, it basically aped the story, but it did something really poor. It it compressed the story down into one episode. Whereas yeah. in, in Wrath of Khan, there's you know a 20-year gap between the planet and the reunion. And the new movie, it's we meet, we meet Khan, and everything happens, and it just doesn't have the gravitas. And specifically, I mean, we can't avoid it, Let's talk about it. Uh, Spock dies. Yeah. And it's emotional. And I think it's the best scene in the film for most people because it it changes what a Star Trek story could be. And knowing, I mean, now we look at this, oh, he'll come back. We know this now. Yeah. But I don't know if people knew that back then. I mean, there was talk about they knew about it, but I mean, would he come back? Like he didn't want to be Spock anymore. Yeah, we weren't far off from the serials where people were uh, uh, indestructible, um, the serial era. But at the same time, um, 
I don't think you could have done this in the first movie. I think it no. would have been an insult. I think you had to have the kind of characters, the accurate characterizations of Rathacon. Well, but the, like you said it right, though. The, the Spock you see in the motion picture is not the Spock we see in forever. You know, we, 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 we see a, I don't want to say warm because Spock's not warm, but we see a very lovable Spock. We see a lovable Kirk. We see a lovable Bones. And they're talking and they're bantering and they're talking about growing old and they're doing this and they're doing that. And of course, there's the scene at the end, which is iconic, which I think has been mimicked. It's been copied. Um, in fact, Leonard Nimoy himself brought it back when he played the Star, uh, the Transformers villain. You remember in um, what was the one he was in? He was in uh, Dark of the Moon, the third one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, he actually merged two characters together. He remember uh, Leonard Nimoy played uh, uh, Galvatron in the first Transformers cartoon movie. In the cartoon movie, yeah. I've yep. never seen that one. Replacing Orson Welles, by the way. Um, but when he made Dar- uh, Dark of the Moon, he played the new villain. I don't even remember the name. The movie's not very good. But he merged, he started quoting this movie. He quoted his line. You know, the huh. needs of, the needs of, the, the, what was the quote? The needs of the, the, the needs of the many oh, outweigh, yeah, outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then he transposed it to the sometimes the needs of the, the few outweigh the needs of the many. And it's yeah, it's yeah, it's the same. That Spock. What what I lo- what I noticed while watching, um, just immersing myself in this is that, um, I Kirk is, is, an interesting character because he is a flawed, human, but he's also an up. You know, he's a he's a stand up guy, but he's you can see his flaws. But as flawed as he is as a human, from Vulcan's stand as Vulcan standards go. Spock is flawed as a as a Vulcan, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, because well, Spock is half Vulcan, remember? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's and, half human. His mom's human, right? And one of the great things about the series is his character, Sarek, becomes a char- is a character from the original show. It comes back in like the Next Generation, okay. and you know that character is really well developed, and the dynamic between Spock and his father is developed about logic and emotion, and it becomes it becomes a power play. It's very Shakespearean. Yeah, it really is, and I, that that I think is maybe the thing that kind of grounds this show into like grounds its identity is is that conflict is, is and that's the age old conflict, right? Like you have, uh, like the, when you write a character, you have one you have one uh, sidekick on this side who's the logic, one sidekick on the other side who is the heart, and and that's where the conflict comes from. Well, but do you remember when this movie starts? We meet Kirstie Alley as the new Vulcan, and she's training, and she's failing the Kobayashi yeah. Maru which becomes a big thing in Star Trek lore. Um, the idea is it's called the unwinnable situation, where a captain has to face defeat. How do you face defeat? And you find out that Kirk is the only person who ever beat it. And it's it's strung along until the very end. And you, do you remember the resolution, how he beat it? Um, he changed the rules, right? Yeah, he, he went and hacked the machine and cheated. Yeah. And he got a, and then he got a recommend, he got a commendation for ingenuity. Yeah, they, they patted him on the back for it. And he's like, he's like, oh, I, I rigged the machine. He's like, I don't like to lose. Yeah. But that's his character, right? Yeah. He's facing the odds, and that's why I think he's so dynamic as a character. And and say what you will, though, I mean, if you watch this show, like when we were, um, when I had the clip of the transporter scene, that's Kirk on the transporter taking over and trying to fix it. Like he knows how to do this. He's capable of doing this. He's not stupid. And if you watch the original show, he's not just, oh, let's go in there and blast him. He's not the stereotype. He knows science. He knows diplomacy. He knows how to, he knows how to adapt to things. He knows all these things because that's, that's what you want in a leader. You want that stability. 
you know, my orders will be obeyed. You like him because he's a cowboy, but he's a diplomatic cowboy. Yeah, his flaws are there, but you have to, they're not as obvious as, like, now that trope is kind of overplayed where, like, the flaws are so on the nose and stuff, but back with with Kirk, it was um, not so obvious. No, and and I think um, when you watch the dynamic with, you know, Spock, the Leonard Nimoy, he's so erudite and so exacting and so, you know, not persnickety. There's no wink or a smile there. There's a raised eyebrow, but he's... But he never bends. And I think the fun of Star Trek, and I think, I almost think we can start wrapping this up here because I think we can go on too long, is you have these characters and you want to see how they get out of the situation. And they don't necessarily bend the universe and break the rules. They work within the rules. And to be fair, to be fair, when you get up to it, though, I will say this, not as a Trekkie, but I think the next generation takes this formula and does it better in many ways. Hmm. I think because it does have, it also has interesting characters. It has power dynamics, you know, with Picard instead of Kirk. It has Data and you know the you know the the logic driven robot, the android, mm-hmm. has Worf, the Klingon, who's brute but he's conflicted. Um, yeah, it's you know it has Geordi, the science officer, who's blind, like, and it's able to make you believe in that optimism in science again. And it it it's. Ex- I would say it's probably the best sequel series I've ever seen of a show. I, I don't think anybody would argue with that. It's a great show. It even made a couple great movies, yeah. but but not many. <laughs> so, was that First Contact from there? Um, first one was Generations. Uh, that's okay. the one where they just they you know stitched the first two together. They they found a way for Kirk to meet Picard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malcolm McDowell played the bad guy, oh, and cool. and then First Contact was I think the first and only good Next Generation movie where the Borg came back. By the way, the Borg, what a great villain. Like, Star Trek's a lot of fun. You're going to have a lot of fun exploring this universe. Oh, yeah, I'm excited uh, to keep going. Um, I just, I, I, I have hope it will return to its former greatness. But I do want to play my last clip, because I think I can't talk about Wrath of Khan without this clip. I think this is the most poignant part. And I think this is the reason why people love this movie. Here we go, my final clip. Don't grieve, Admiral. It's logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. I never took the Kobayashi Maru test. Until now. What do you think of my solution? soundtrack right there before you know jerry goldsmith's uh, redo uh you know it's a little even though spock is dying it's optimistic it's still optimistic for what it is and you know the new movie they they reversed it they killed kirk instead but then they brought him right back to life in the like, same almost film. in the same way too with the it was like yeah uh, yeah nuclear but it felt unearned 
because I mean everything was so compressed. Like you don't have time to grieve because he's coming back in the same movie. He's got to come back so we yeah. can have an action scene. And it's you know it's just and the movie ends on a uh, let's just say it's like Empire Strikes Back. It ends on a dour note. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, real quick before we before we head out though, I just want to say I just want to talk a little bit about a couple things before I go though. So what did you think though? As someone who's not a huge Star Trek nerd. What did you really like about the Wrath of Khan? Um, I honestly liked how similar it was to the show. Characterizations, um, uh, just like I said, the episodic nature of it. It it really matched um, a lot of what I liked about it. It wasn't as meditative as, like I said, the first one, which is why I I part of me likes that. I like part of the first movie better mm-hmm. than the second one, but I think as a whole, I, I don't know which one I like more. I was really trying to think of it. Um, like I said, I, as a Star Trek film, this is objectively better, but as a movie, I don't know. It's it's hard. Well, I think it goes without saying, without this movie, there's no more Star Trek movies. I think this is what saved it and resurrected sure, yeah, it. yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, became a big, it, became a, it didn't become like a huge Star Wars hit, but it became a profitable hit, and I think Paramount learned they could produce these things on a budget and make a lot of money, and and the anc- ancillary budget, uh, ancillary funds from like toys and figures became huge, because they had that, you know, they had something similar to Star Wars. Um, well, just, and I think it showed in 1982 that you could make a big scope movie like like a sci-fi movie and stuff without it needing to be like it could still be successful without being star wars you had sci-fi movies that were successful but you didn't have anything with the kind of scope as this yeah it's it's science fiction but it's characters it's different it's a unique blend and you know as the films went by they the quality went up and down the third one is okay uh the fourth one was i think the fourth one is the most successful the one where they go back in time to save the whales. Yeah, what's that um, called? Uh, the Voyage Home. Voyage Home, yeah. Uh, and I recommend it big time uh, because if you ever watch Nicholas Meyer's first real movie, Time After Time, it's basically that movie where, okay. you know, <laughs> Jack the Ripper uh, is being pursued by H.G. Wells in 1976 through a time machine. But it sounds silly, but it's actually a lot of fun. I started his book, by the way. Oh, it's fun. He's, he, yeah, I'm in the first chapter. I don't. Th- I don't want to call him cynical, but he's got a very interesting perspective on how to make it in Hollywood. Yeah, he is kind of. He is cynical, but yeah, it's very. Yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, he has, he has a he has an interesting voice. I, I it's it's easy to read for anyone out there. Yeah, it's 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 a breeze, and it's it's, yeah. it, it's if you're interested in how Hollywood used to be in the '80s, I think that's a good a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, you, you get into the fifth movie, which is most people consider the worst. It's the, uh, the what is it? Um, goodness, what's it called? Uh, the Final Frontier, directed by William Shatner, where they have to go find God. Um, most most famous for the line, what does God need with a starship? Uh, the sixth movie, also directed by Nicholas Myers and directed uh, The Undiscovered Country, is a very good movie. A lot of people consider it one of the best. It's the final movie with the cast. Um, it's basically Shakespeare via the Cold War, where you have Klingons, yeah, Klingons like spouting Shakespeare. And I think um, who is in it? There's a couple of famous Christopher Plummer's in it, oh, and okay. and I think is uh what's his name? Uh, who's the guy from Time After Time? What's his name? I'm gonna kill myself if I don't give you the right thing. Um, let me see here. Malcolm McDowell's in it. Malcolm, no, David Warner. David Warner. Oh, okay. 
And Warner Warner had had been in several Star Trek the Next Generation episodes, so he loves the franchise. But it's it's a Cold War about intrigue and politics. And it's a lot of fun, but it's and at the end <laughs> this is gonna sound so dirty. But do you remember the end of the Avengers movie, the endgame? Do you remember what uh-huh. they remember what they did during the credits? In the the wait, an endgame? Yeah. Remember the very last thing uh-huh. they did when the credits came up? You remember what they did? During the credits. Oh jeez, I'm trying to remember the credits. Oh, for that movie. I don't remember that movie, but it's uh, they had the they had the cast sign their name on the screen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like okay, yeah, I remember. That's that part, from yeah. Star Trek Six. That's what they did in Star ah, Trek Six. They oh, signed their cool. names because it's like goodbye. Yeah, because it was like the last one with Downey Jr. and, and yep. Chris Evans. And do you, stuff. Oh, huh. Yeah. Do you and do you remember uh, Star Trek? Did you see the third Star Trek movie? No, I didn't see... Oh, uh, you mean the J.J. Abrams one? Yeah, what was it called? Yeah, I saw that one. What was saw, it called? Oh, jeez. Unknown I, or something? Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Trek... I don't remember. Well, it's the it third wasn't one. that good. Well, it's the one where they acknowledge that Leonard Nimoy died, and okay, yeah. they find in his backpack this picture of what they're going to look like when they're older, and it's just the original cast from this movie. Oh, nice. It's a group okay. shot. Like, yeah, you're going to grow real old and weird looking. You're not going to match up to these people. Speaking of which, isn't it interesting how long <laughs> the actors from Star Trek live? Yeah, it's weird because I think they have si- – they it's all that science fiction. <laughs> it's all the not – it's because they didn't use asbestos on the set. So that's what – they're why. all smoking. Well, like, because- Michelle Nichols is like 90. George Takei is like 90. Shatner's 90. Jeez. Like – Nimoy lived to be, I think he was like in his 80s, but still. I'll just say this, though. Um, it's fun to go back and watch what this meant to them. Like, not all of them had success. Like, um, Chekhov, what's his name? Walter Koenig didn't have a lot of success. Yeah. Um, you know, George Takei has talked, he's he's had a lot of recent success yeah. through activism. But, you know, you look at Nichelle Nichols, she had a she had a wonderful career. Like, she had a wonderful career. She opened so many doors, especially in, in in civil rights border in yeah. corners. Leonard Nimoy, of course, had, let's be honest, I think he's probably the most successful out of all of them. Uh, William yeah. Shatner, of course, is, we talked about him already. Yeah, James Dewan, though, i got to give credit to Scotty. That guy's a badass. He was on, he was on D-Day. He lost fingers. He invented really? the Klingon language. Yeah, he's, he's a, he was more involved in Star Trek than you could imagine. Like, he's one of the key players behind the scenes. Canadian, yeah. Yeah, and they blew his ash. they blew some of his ashes into space. So it's crazy. I'm trying to think who else was the, who else was really influential from that. Just in general, like it's just these are. Can you imagine watching this show in the '60s? It's still here. Like it's yeah. still here. Like you, on some form or another, you're watching William Shatner go into space. You're seeing new Star Trek shows on TV. It's like every once in a while, Ethan, you you latch onto something and you're like, this is going to be worth my time. Yeah. Like it's not going to be twenty four seven, but it's going to be worth my time. Like this is something I'm 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 really happy that's part of my life, and I think, for better or for worse, um, the Star Trek show and then the movies changed film, uh, accidentally. Not it was not planned. Uh, it wasn't engineered that way. A lot there's a lot of mistakes. I mean, how do you go from you know pajamas to that? But I think it worked out, and I think it I think it I think it stands the test of time, and I think. We have a lot of great movies from this franchise. Not all of them. A couple stinkers. But I think you have Wrath of Khan. I think you have the motion picture. I think they both stand up. Even the whales. I love it. And But no, and I, I, I envy you as to going on this journey. I really do. Because, you know, when I was growing up, I watched the movies before I watched the show. Yeah, I went backwards. 
I, I like it too because when we're watching the show, there's so much to talk about. Like it, it, we were talking about, like we're analyzing the episodes, we're analyzing the twists, we're analyzing how the plot progresses and mm-hmm. the arc and all that stuff. And to me, that's kind of the fun of it. And there's not a lot of shows now that we watch where we're doing the same type of thing. Like I compare it to The Mandalorian, like episodic. And that's why I love that show. I think it's maybe I think it's the greatest show ever. The Mandalorian. <laughs> well, I have a show to recommend that I would never have dreamed I would have recommended. Like, a lot of people will say the 1999 movie Galaxy Quest is the best Star Trek movie that doesn't say Star Trek. And I agree with that. It does capture why people love Star Trek. It captures that magic. It really does. It really does. And similarly, uh, there's a show out called The Orville, directed by, of all people, Seth uh, MacFarlane, you know, Family Guy. It's like five seasons now, right? It, the third one just started. Um, well, it, it came out the exact, I almost think the same month that the new Star Trek show came out, Discovery. Yeah, it did Discovery, yeah. I remember that when that happened because yeah. like, it was getting confused. It was getting confused, but the problem is like, but he he made his show more like Star Trek, like the original show. Yeah. He even got the same directors. And wow, he, he, loves, cool. he loves Star Trek. It's pretty clear. Then you watch Discovery and it's very cynical. It's dark. It's, there's a lot of, there's sexual abuse. There's just, it's, it's very uncomfortable to watch, and I don't think it's me that that's like that. I think it's because I don't know. It's like the new Star Trek, Star Wars movies, Ethan. It's like I feel like the people who make it don't understand why we liked it, mm-hmm. and it's not moving things forward if, to be nasty. It's you fundamentally do not understand why people like this on a yeah. on a micro on a micro level. Whereas the Orville, bumpy start, but it feels like a Star Trek. It feels like it. It's not exactly the same, but it, it has that same taste, you know, the same flavor. You know, it's like, you know, it's like Canada versus the United States. It's close enough. You know, the money's weird, mm-hmm. but the people yeah. are nice. Did the money's talk? pretty close, at least. Well, I mean, their money's called the loony, right? So, I mean, what are you going to do yeah. with that? But no, um, so yeah, I, I recommend the Orville. I haven't seen the new season, but I re- if you really want a taste of that modern, it's still possible. I think people still want it. And... Um, yeah, I'm I'm really optimistic about where they're going to go, but but yeah, I think we both agree. I think we both like the motion picture, and I think we both like Wrath of Khan quite a bit for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And isn't it fun that a movie like a seri- a franchise can have that diversity in it, like in itself, and still exist? Oh yeah, and both of them, and, and I love that they're that I love that I loved both of them because they're so different, and it proves that. Whereas, like, in Star Wars, if they were that different, I would be like, what is this? Um, yeah. And I will I will end it by saying this. Uh, one of the things about streaming television, you hear all the time shows get canceled, like, after two episodes. Mm-hmm. This harkens back to a day when a good idea can be nurtured and fixed. You know, they can fix it. They work on it. They, they keep working on it. Like, if it's good, make it work, you know? Yeah. Whereas yeah. Picard would say, make it so. And any final thoughts before we head out? I don't think so. I mean, I, I you have more you have more to say on this than I do, obviously. Well, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm enjoying my journey into <laughs> into uh, the Enterprise for now, and then I I'm honestly can't wait till the '90s series because I I kind of grew up. My dad kind of watched them, but I had no idea what was going on, so I didn't really pay attention. But well, I think uh, I think you're going to be surprised when you see the next generation. Um, it really heats up after the second season, but I'll say this. Um, I hope. We got across to everybody that the idea is that Star Trek doesn't have to be some nerdy sci-fi show that only can be enjoyed if you know all the pieces. That there's a lot of classic Shakespearean cinema here. There's a lot of classic, you know, whodunit. There's a lot of classic character development. I think 
if you put that in anything, anything can be successful. It doesn't matter if you're in space, if you're on an asteroid, if you're underwater, if you're in a jet plane, if you're wherever. If it's if you got good characters, you have a good show. Yeah. And I think that's all it takes. Really, that's without it, I mean, why would I want to watch? So, and with that, you have been listening to the Movie Time podcast from Popsara. This has been Nathan Evans, uh, host of the show, and my the other host is da 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 da, Mr. Ethan Brem. Ethan, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And this is where we'd usually put a lot of funny bits about Star Trek and try to nerd out, but I think it's time to uh, energize and beam us up. And with that, have a good weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the PopZara Podcast. For more quality original content, check out PopZara.com for the latest reviews and previews in gaming, movies, tech, and more.